Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. But yesterday is Björn Örgude, and he's, uh, I'm going to try to say it in Norwegian and then try to translate the title of the book, which I'm holding up in front of me here. It's from Utrepeer, an Uppdatert Historia om Andre Verdenskrig in Norge. And the, the English translation would be Occupied and Updated History about the Second World War in Norway. And as always, I of course have to ask, what inspired you to write this book? The... The war in Norway, the occupation, is a huge historical issue. A lot of interest about it. Um, a lot of books coming out every year. But uh, curiously enough, there hadn't been a comprehensive single-volume book about the war written in uh, about 30 years, actually, since 1990. So uh, me and the publisher, we, we thought it was about time that we could uh, gather all the new insight, the new uh, research um, that has been um, uh, done since, uh, since the early 90s. Uh, there's been a new generation of historians, not the least, um, and present that in a readable, it's not an academic uh, book, but uh, a book that uh, aims to make uh, this, this history available, accessible to a wider audience. Um, and there just wasn't any that kind of book was simply lacking in the in the book market. So that's why we wanted to do it. And it's of course uh, the war when you when you grow up in Norway, it's uh, an ever present um, kind of backdrop to your national identity, identity as a Norwegian. So personally too, I had uh, I have interest in, in the war history. It's an intriguing topic to to go into. Right. And of course, Norway was really supposed to be neutral, wasn't it? In Before Hitler claimed, as we are going to discuss briefly, that the, the British occupation was against Norwegian neutrality. So that's quite, I find it fascinating as well. Yeah, it was uh, Norway, uh, along with the other Scandinavian countries, uh, had at the time in 1940 uh, uh, been neutral for very for long. I mean, Denmark had a brief war with uh, Prussia in the uh, mid 19th century, 1850s, uh, somewhere 1864, around there. 1864, I think. Yeah, 1864. Yeah, when they they lost uh, Schleswig-Holstein. Um, but uh, more recently, First World War, all the nation, all the three Scandinavian nations were neutral, and it served them well. In Norway, it's, it's a part of Norwegian history that uh, Norway has uh, since the, um, I mean, the wars in the late 1700s, uh, the American Independence War, and so on. Norway has made quite a bit of money on on. Uh, 
staying neutral, but uh, but um, um, selling to the war parties, you know, either through shipping or uh, timber and so on. And they did this in the First World War with, uh, at least for during two, the first two years, with a great amount of success. Um, and there's also this attitude that small countries, this was a, a big topic in the interwar years, small countries could really do nothing to influence the big powers. They, they, the best thing they could hope for was to stay neutral, stay out of the conflicts. So yeah, well, that happened with, with Belgium in the First World War. Yeah, uh, Belgium in the First World War is actually very relevant to the Norwegian situation in, in 1940. You could also say Czechoslovakia in the, the Munich Agreement. Uh, uh, was uh, handed down on a small nation. Czechoslovakia was never given a place at the table in, in Munich. And in Norway, uh, the attitude was that if we get involved in the war, the same thing will happen to us. So the best we can hope for is to stay neutral. And of course, uh, Hitler had no idea to, uh, no plan to take Norway. He didn't see it as, uh, he, he didn't consider it necessary to take Norway. Uh, he, he thought Norway would stay fairly friendly towards Germany because, of course, he had a racialist uh, understanding of of, um, of the world, and the Nordic, the Germanic races would naturally uh, bond together. He also thought that England would stay friendly to Germany, and he was surprised when that uh, turned out not to be the case in 1939. So. Um, Although Norway planned to stay neutral, this was a war, as all wars, of course, uh, things happen on the spot, but more so in the war against Nazis, which was, uh, which had a, I mean, Hitler was in the extreme uh, given towards improvisation. He thought he could just improvise himself out of everything. So when the need uh, arose that, uh, yeah, maybe we should take Norway after all, he, he uh, was very... Uh, he, he was inclined to do so on the spur of the moment and on very short notice. So, no, it was as, as a matter for Twistling, who we were talked about as well. And there's a word you and now it's in the Keep in Mind is Norwegian podcast, but it's called Twistling is Trufak. And but we don't, but he was the one talking about his history, which will be an episode in itself. But well, it was he that, as a matter of fact, talked to Hitler about wanting. That Norway might be a good idea to occupy for the Nazis. Right? <laughs> yeah, a good idea. Yeah, he convinced Hitler that Germany uh, uh, had to take Norway. And uh, of course, Hitler, no, I'm sorry, Quisling being uh, one of the most hated men in Norwegian history uh, and being a very, very um, idiosyncratic political thinker, um, a weird guy in many respects, his analysis will not, was not necessarily wrong. The Allies, what he told Hitler is that England, the Allies, they will take Norway. And when that happens, you will lose access to this crucial resource, iron ore from Kiruna. Uh, without iron ore from Kiruna, the, the German armament uh, uh, industry would just uh, uh, collapse fairly shortly. I mean, the, the iron works in the rural area, they would not have the... Uh, you know, the resources, the natural resources to continue building cannons, and, uh, guns and uh, ships and all this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, 
this is a part of of uh, uh, Quisling's analysis that was correct. It has been shown after the war in more recent studies that uh, the Allies, England and France, uh, and this was uh, was taking place in in collaboration with Poland. They did indeed have very clear plans to to go into Norway. This was at the time the the Soviet Union was attacking Finland. This is a very important premise for the the German invasion of of uh, Norway, which often uh, disappears because it the winter war in Finland it it finished before the Germans attacked Norway, but that is the backdrop to to the whole. Uh, uh, geopolitical situation. England and France thought they had to go through Norway in order to to stop or assist the um, the Finnish against the Soviet Union, and they had clear plans on this, and they were planning to do it. And the soldiers were in their ships, you know, in uh, ready to be uh, shipped across the North Sea to to Norway when uh, the 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 ceasefire in Finland occurred. So they just they had to go back on shore, actually. It was that close. And if that had happened, England would have taken, they would have uh, uh, gone uh, on shore in Norway somewhere in, in northern Norway and, and marched through northern Sweden. And Hitler's nightmare would have become a reality that he would be cut off from the iron ore in, in Sweden. And if that happened, he could simply not have uh, gone through with the war plans, you know, to take, uh, get vengeance for the Versailles Treaty and all this kind of stuff moving into Western Europe, and later on into the Soviet Union. So, so Quisling, he is the one who told this to Hitler. Hitler never thought about this. And the Ger- Germans, they had no plan whatsoever. They had made no war um, scenario in the, in the, um, you know, and the joint chiefs in, in Germany, the uh, the uh, Oberkommando in the Wehrmacht, they had no war scenario for taking Norway. In fact, they didn't have any maps, updated maps about Norway. The, the maps they had of Norway was dating back from 1890. They found a few scraps in the, in the, in the cellar of some kind of army uh, office. So when uh, Falkenhorst, uh, the German general, uh, who was uh, told to to make the uh, invasion plan in Norway? The, what he had to do first was go to a bookstore and buy himself a tourist guide to Norway. That was his document for planning the invasion of Norway. It was that far fetched, you know? Uh, but it was uh, Quisling who in, uh, convinced Hitler that uh, Norway was more pro Anglo, uh, more pro English than Hitler actually. Anticipated. He had this idea, as I said, that uh, there was a G- Germanic brotherhood, you know, that this would just fall into place. But uh, Quisling told him, no, the Norwegians, they're, they're positive, they're sympathetic to the uh, English a- uh, effort. You know, we had uh, the first queen in Norway, she was English. So if you don't watch out, the English will take Norway and most likely will do so with no uh, significant opposition from Norway. That we would never know uh, if, if Norway would have resisted an, uh, an English invasion, but that was... Uh, it sounds it was, unlikely, but it sounds more unlikely that we would resist an British invasion to me. Pardon me? It, it sounds unlikely that, that it would have 
English resist resistance against the English would. Yeah, it sounds unlikely, yeah. but at the same time, uh, although uh, although Norway was, of course, this is because of the First World War, mm. sympathetic and and West leaning. Mm. Before the First World War, the Nor uh, Norway was definitely German leaning. I mean, uh, if you read Norwegian novels from the late uh, 1900s, you, uh, you will time and again on a regular basis run into German quotations. They would quote Goethe and Fichte and all these uh, well-known German writers in German. It would be written in a German language in Norwegian books because it was people simply could read German. But because of, of uh, the First World War, and as you mentioned, Belgium, Belgium was a huge issue. Uh, and, and the shock of the German uh, army marching through neutral Belgium to take uh, on France um, really uh, made an impact in Norway. And after that, and of course, then you had four other uh, more years and you had a German submarine war, which uh, made a... a affected Norwegian sailors and uh, Norwegian shipping in uh, massives, uh, at a massive rate, you know, a lot of Norwegian ships being sunk by German sub, uh, submarines. So, so the sympathy in Norway after uh, 1918 was definitely towards England. That said, it's not necessarily that, I mean, if England had come and they would have done so with no warning, Norway, the Norwegian government would have been given no warning. They would just have marched in. Um, it's not uh, said by itself that Norway would not have reacted to that. There mm. might have been some kind of not serious resistance, but there might have been some kind of symbolic resistance, uh, a little bit shooting and so on, mm. just to make the point we are neutral. We don't accept this. We're not uh, uh, placing ourselves on the English part mm. as a way of communicating to Germany we want to stay neutral. We want to be out of this conflict. Um, so if, if England had come, it, uh, it might have happened with very little stress to them, you know, to march through Norway. But it would definitely have soured the relationship with uh, Norway politically. So, of course, let's talk about, which is, and this is rather a significant date in Norwegian history, when 9th April, when the Nazis away. So how... How quickly was this done? Because the region, even with outdated weapons, they managed to sink one of their ships as they drove into the coast of Europe. Yeah, you had a, you had a coastal defense in Norway, which was uh, uh, well made. I mean, this is back. Uh, um, uh, we, we had a war situation against the against Sweden from the late eighteen nineties to nineteen o five. But also the First World War was uh, a wake-up for, for Norway. So although the, the guns were outdated, they, they did function. And uh, most of the Norwegian defense in, in, uh, at the eve of the German invasion 9th, uh, in, on April 9th uh, was, had a fairly miserable showing. I mean, you had army commanders who just gave up and uh, put down their weapons and you had this infamous um, um, uh, situation where uh, soldiers were giving defunct uh, weapons, rifles, where uh, you know parts of the mechanism had been uh, stored at different locations, 
And this was out of fear of the socialist revolution in Norway. Um, so the, the Germans uh, had a lot going for them when they came to, to Norway. They were, of course, a much, much more efficient war machine uh, and had been so for 100 years you know, because the Prussians had been uh, building up a very uh, well-functioning military organism. But what happened is that uh, the, the, the invasion uh, uh, had uh, not many, but uh, a few major setbacks. First of all, there were uh, one or two uh, big ships sunk in the, uh, in the Skagerrak, you know, the, during the crossing over from Denmark. And a lot of soldiers went down. This is not talked so much about in Norwegian history, but uh, a lot of the troops that were supposed to land in southern Norway uh, on April 9th, they, they went down. They drowned in the, in the seas. Uh, but then uh, uh, the other more uh, famous and very significant event is, of course, that at the small town of Dröbach, um, this major uh, German uh, warship, Blücher, was uh, sunk. Uh, by uh, the local commander who uh, pretty much took uh, things into his own hands. He, had, he acted according to what was the, um, uh, the regulated way to, to act as, uh, for, uh, for an officer. I mean, you had a, an alien force coming in and it was a bit uh, confusion. Were they French? Were they Germans? Were they English? Some commanders thought they might be Italian. Uh, so you didn't really know... If you should fire, should we fire on the English? That was a big thing. But this guy, he fired anyway. They'd be English or French or whatever they were. And accidentally, it turned out to be a, a German ship. And this was the ship holding the soldiers who were supposed to uh, occupy Oslo, arrest the government, arrest the king, and uh, do the same as in, in Denmark. It, within just hours, ensure that Norway politically was unable to put up a fight. Um, I, I was, but they couldn't I, do I, it. I was forgot to say this, but it does kind of simultaneously with the occupation of Denmark. It kind of goes the same as quickly, uh, not as maybe not as quickly, but it goes simultaneously as the occupation of Denmark, right? The... That was the same operation. They took Denmark in the uh, you know in the first hours, and they were just proceeded on to Norway. And of course, Denmark is a much more difficult country to defend. It's just totally flat. So once the Germans were on shore, uh, there wasn't that much the Danish could do. Norway is, you'd have to admit, you know, because of the topography of the mountains and, and uh, uh, just the geographical expanse, it's much more difficult to take quickly. And uh, it did take the Germans two months to, to take it first one, yeah, about one month to take southern Norway, and then uh, the last month to uh, to take Narvik, uh, this this uh, crucial port town in northern Norway, where the iron ore uh, from northern Sweden were to be shipped out. Um, so, so Denmark fell quickly, and also the king in Denmark uh, didn't have much choice. He he, uh, he was uh, put under, you know, house um, uh, arrest. He, yeah, in, in Copenhagen, the Germans had him under control. So that was about it, you know. I mean, he could have chosen to become a martyr and die. But, I mean, it, it kind of goes against the grain in Scandinavian mentality to do that. And you have to remember, too, that the Germans were very adamant that this would be presented as a mild occupation. 
they they were very insistent. We come as friends. We're not interested in uh, in uh, in uh, having war. We come uh, to protect you against England. Uh, maybe they didn't think that would go over so easily, but they had good reason to think that the, the local population in Denmark and Norway uh, would not be too hostile. They, they, that was a uh, wrong assessment in the long run, but it's understandable that the Germans thought so because there'd been so much contact beforehand. And of course, uh, when you're a Nazi, you're kind of blinded by your own ideology. But we should remember that these were still not the hardcore Nazis coming. This was the Wehrmacht, was the military officers. And they what they did in Scandinavia is not particularly different from what they had done before in France in 1871, 1870-1871, Um, to subdue the enemy and then uh, uh, thought that uh, the, the local population would just accept this as one, just another of those instances where the great powers do what they have to do. Uh, and there's not really much the, the local population can do to change, you know, the, the, the power politics among the great powers. That was the idea, but uh, and in, in a way they uh, they were right. But you had uh, this Norwegian resistance for two months, of course. So, as as the Nazis come in, how, how much time did the government, because in, unlike in Denmark, the Norwegian national is able to flee to England. So, how how much time does the government have to prepare to flee? I think not necessarily <laughs> take everything want... they have, but you know, to flee and escape the country. Yeah, this happened at the spur of moment. As uh, I said, it's it's uh, of course it's Nazi control, but uh, the people, the soldiers landing. Uh, uh, this is a whole different debate, but the kind of the Nazi component of the occupation in Norway, it's uh, it comes to the forefront uh, a few weeks later. You know, when you have uh, a political occupation of Norway. So it's still the Wehrmacht. But the, the government, they, they are woken up in the uh, wee hours of April 9th. Uh, there's confusion everywhere. Uh, they're told that this uh, warship in, uh, has been sunk, the Blücher, and that the Germans are coming. So they establish fairly quickly that uh, the, the, the uh, attacking force is German. And thanks Probably to the... Probably would be a good idea to stay. Pardon? Probably wouldn't be a good idea to stay. Now it, it, it was a. Uh, but this is not something that Norwegians were prepared for. So it's mm. uh, the prime minister uh, at the time, Johan Igorskovol. Of course, his reputation was completely ruined by these uh, chaotic hours because he was caught um, into some kind of apathy and he, he just mit, didn't, didn't measure up to the situation. In my opinion, a bit unfair to say, uh, you know, because no Norwegians had been prepared for this. It's been a country at peace for uh, more than 100 years. Uh, of course, you should ex hope for the political leaders to uh, to rise to the occasion and so on. But very few in Europe did. But what you did have in Norway was a very uh, a quick-witted uh, president of the parliament, uh, Hambro. Um, 
who was a conservative. The, the government in Norway at the time was a labor government. And this Hambro, he's the one who orchestrated the escape from Oslo. And it, it uh, <clears throat> I don't know how much they could pack, but there was a few underwear. And, and um, was it Nigoshwal himself or Hambro? I can't remember, but I think Nigoshwal, he was a big guy, you know, he was a little bit overweight. And he, he, he wore underwear, which was not a regular size. So he was very, uh, uh, he was very happy that he could pack at least his underwear because it was very difficult to get hold of that big size underwear. So it's those kind of funny things that happen in a chaotic, confused situation like this. But it was, the Germans were coming and they just had to scramble out of Oslo. And by sheer luck, and the Germans went after that very aggressively and they sent a forward uh, uh, platoon to try to either arrest or kill the government and the king and you had this skirmish uh, outside of Elburum uh, which is uh, you know in the vicinity of Oslo but uh, a few hours by train but but uh, so chance was on uh, the luck was on the Norwegian side and the government and the king could escape and then they had a whole uh, whole um, uh, uh, tour uh, through Norway, up to northern Norway. Why, why, they, this, well, why not try to go westwards and then take a ship to London? Why do other way not? Is there a logical reason for this? Yeah, well, they were, were trying to hold the Germans as long as possible. And for uh, for a while, there was a, uh, an idea that, yeah, okay, the Germans will probably take southern Norway, but hopefully we can make a stand in northern Norway. So if they could get across kind of that front line, where, wherever that would be, the, the, the Germans, they were just going for Narvik. So if, and the, the, because of uh, Allied help, Polish and French and, and English troops being sent in in, in massive quantity. Uh, and uh, in the Narvik, it uh, was. It seemed very. Uh, I mean, they took. We took Narvik because the Germans they were weak up there. Uh, it was a. It was a fair assessment that Narvik could be held, and in that case, you could have a, a, a sort of a local government in the, in the very northern part of Norway. And another um, um, alternative was that which the crown prince he was very much uh, interested in okay the government the king can go to uh, to to england just to say, stay safe but i'll stay back here and i'll uh, function as the figurehead for norwegian resistance holding the germans south of norway uh, but none of that came to effect because uh, when france fell um, and you had dunkirk and everything then the Allies just had to leave Norway and, and uh, worry about their own countries. Mm, because as, as you mentioned, Norway there is seemed it was supposed to come on Christmas, but it has I don't know if the movie has come out yet, but there is supposed to be a movie coming out in Norway about the battle, like, which I'm not even sure has come out yet because of you know you know the C word. But uh, it was essentially and you remember you writing this it was an Allied victory essentially, wasn't it? They, they were not, not decisively, though, because the Germans, they retreated up into the mountains. But you have to remember that the Germans, uh, these were um, uh, the, the, uh, paratroopers, mainly. Uh, they came uh, with, the, with the ships up there, but it was very limited how many troops they could uh, transport. 
uh, and to hold Narvik, you have to hold uh, the vicinity around it. You have uh, it's it's a challenging landscape to take. So towards the end of this uh, uh, this battle, and you're now talking uh, June 1940. Uh, you had something like between 20 and 30,000 Allied troops, you know, the Norwegian uh, soldiers uh, fighting alongside the, uh, these uh, English, French and Polish troops. And I think the, uh, the, the uh, kind of battle-ready German troops amounted to only like 700, something like that. So it was a totally uneven battle. And of course, if it had lasted, the Germans would have been uh, 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 defeated, and they were they were uh, kind of positioning themselves for this, going into the mountains and not too far away from the border to Sweden, so that they could flee across into neutral Sweden should there uh, should the Allies stay. But uh, but um, uh, the the Allies had to uh, retreat as uh, as mentioned they, they just couldn't stay in Norway anymore so there was a lot of um, that was a huge major disappointment to the uh, Norwegian politicians and the Norwegian uh, uh, military people crying you know battle hardened officers breaking down in tears and so on but that was just the reality of the war at the time that uh, Norway itself was ended up just being one of the uh, many countries in the war, the theater of war. At the time when, when Hitler went after Norway, Norway was, uh, I mean, Denmark fell easily. Norway was uh, country number two after Poland to kind of put up a serious fight. But then when he launched his, uh, his blitzkrieg into Western Europe, I mean, uh, there wasn't much uh, chance of Norway to, to hold their, uh, their own territory. So, of course, as the occupation begins, you do mention, and it's quite a significant airport today in Varnes, Trondheim Airport, but it looks quite different. And so what was the significant? Because you write quite a lot about it in your book, about how yeah, important yeah. Varnes as an airport is. Yeah, but, but Trondheim, of course, Norway is a very long country, so ideally you should have had a map to, to point this out. You have Oslo in the very southern part of it, uh, but the Germans, they have to take the major ports. They, they land troops uh, all uh, up, up through the coast, uh, several places. Bergen is another big uh, port you have to take, but many smaller towns too. But Varnes and, and Trondheim, which is in the middle of Norway, and uh, I mean, that's typically, traditionally, that's where the capital would have been, you know, in the heart of the country. Um, uh, that was crucial to the Germans because they needed to uh, refuel the planes that were going up to Narvik. They didn't have uh, uh, bombers and transport planes with a long enough range. And this was a, a surprise to the Germans to discover how undeveloped the infrastructure in Norway was. Mm. And they were uh, surprised, but also quite a Bit disappointed, you know. They thought these uh, Norwegians would have shared the Germanic spirit and uh, be uh, equally industrious and entrepreneurial as the Germans were. But what they discovered was a country that didn't, simply between Oslo and, and north of Oslo, didn't have any decent airports at all. And uh, outside of Trondheim, this crucial landing spot, they had a, uh, an airport, Varnes. 
but it wasn't uh, an airport like the Germans would have thought of it. That would have meant, you know, concrete uh, surfacing and so on. It was just uh, uh, a field uh, that when the rains came, turned into mud and uh, bombers and military airplanes, aircraft or heavy stuff, you know, so they, they were bogged down and they, they couldn't do it. So the Germans had to make a, one of those uh, uh, very impressive um, um, projects that they were experts on doing, just building an airport from scratch very, very quickly. So they did it first with wooden, uh, uh, wooden flooring, basically. And then after they had secured Nordic, they, they began to uh, lay the concrete there. But it was uh, very, very important to the Germans to take Trondheim. And later on in the war, this figured uh, prominently for Hitler because he thought of uh, Trondheim to become this, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, a major uh, naval um, uh, base for the Germans from where they could secure the North Atlantic. That was his, so he was having megalomaniac uh, plans for, uh, to expand Trondheim into a city of 250,000 people and it was going to be the Singapore of the North Europe and so on. So, so Trondheim was very important to, to, to the Germans from the very beginning. That was quite a mission there. <laughs> yeah, that would move the city a little bit and this was of course to facilitate the uh, submarine bunkers, you know. But it was because of uh, strategically this is the, the North Atlantic, and uh, he had to stop the uh, Allied convoys going to Murmansk uh, because that's where Stalin got his, his uh, supplies. The, uh, um, the Black Sea and Vladivostok was uh, not really um, uh, something that Stalin could use, but he, he got uh, shipments from the United States uh, via England to Murmansk. So, uh, and, and that traffic went north of Norway. So you, they deployed the submarines in, in uh, Trondheim and also further north in Norway to attack those convoys. Um, so from a strategic point of view, Trondheim was very important. Now, you also talk about how the Nazi occupation became like an economic boom and work opportunities for the Norwegian people. And as you, as you read this, it does, Kind of like doesn't sound too bad, right? But then you also read that they torture people and they imprison and innocent people do, and that yeah, yeah, that sounds like the Nazis. So let's talk. <laughs> let's talk about the, the before we come to the persistence part, uh, as we were talking about how the economic boom and the Nazi occupation kind of helped in a way for the Norwegian people, giving work opportunities. Yeah, of course, you have to put all these terms in quotation marks because uh, um, um, a, a, a kind of unanimous a total assessment would, of course, be that the occupation was a bad thing. Nobody wants to be occupied by a foreign force. But uh, the backdrop is, of course, the interwar years and you have the economic crisis, the 90s. The 20s and 30s, they were very hard uh, all over Europe, all over the world. Uh, and Norway was no uh, different. Um, a lot of personal bankruptcies. And although this kind of ended in 1933, 1934, the worst of the crisis, um, the sense of um, economic distress lingered on. 
Of course, you had uh, a labor government uh, during the last half of the 1930s who uh, uh, emphasized, you know, that uh, uh, the economic recovery has to benefit people. Because uh, we have to remember that Norway wasn't this famous welfare state we are today until the 1970s. It's, it was still a poor country like most, I would say most countries in Europe at the time. Yeah, and people suffered. Uh, so you had uh, a massive problem of uh, unemployment among young men. This is uh, also, I think, is a, is a significant uh, aspect to how the German occupation and the, the ger- all these German building projects affected the population because the, the demographic um, kind of group that benefited the most from them were young men, and you had uh, 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 you had very uh, very high uh, uh, percentage of the Norwegian population at the time. They were uh, youngsters, young men and women, in the age of uh, between fifteen and thirty years old. You had a sort of a, a baby boom around nineteen twenty, and they were now coming of age, and a lot of those men. And, and women, of course, but mainly it's, it's a concern for the men. They were unemployed. Uh, they had rather pathetic lives. You know, they, they didn't have any prospects to marry. They were staying at home. Things were that rather... sounds like my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, but at least you live in the welfare state, as yeah. you say. Uh, and then uh, in come the Germans, you know, and nobody is uh, happy about this, of course. And, and uh, But people are really... Uh, kind of sitting on the fence a bit, wondering how this is going to play out. Uh, it's important to remember a small country like Norway, the mentality is that there is not very much we can do when the great powers go to war against each other. When England and, and Germany uh, uh, have a clash, we can't do much else than just sit around, wait for this uh, cataclysmic event to pass over. And in the meantime, we have to live. We have to make money and so on. There was uh, a, there's a famous li- meme where, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a, where like, Britain was alone in World War II, at least in the beginning. And then you see also Britain, and it's, it's still the, this huge British empire. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, well, memes are not my... <laughs> fair enough, <laughs> fair enough. ...interest, a uh, bit, bit too old for that. But you have all these young uh, young men, particularly, who won't work. And uh, what the Germans do, like they have to build, they have to fix up the Norwegian infrastructure. It's just, in, uh, you know, a, a total mess. You know, they come in and they don't find any roads they can use. There aren't any ports that can uh, take in uh, uh, big cargo ships, uh, warships, and so on. They don't have airports. All these things have to be built up. And they're shipping up a lot of soldiers. I mean, it takes two months and you have 100,000, 100,000 German soldiers. And they need to be accommodated. They need barracks to to stay in. They need camps. So there's a, even as the war in Norway is proceeding, you know, the uh, the battle between the, uh, the Germans and the Norwegian forces, you have a lot of Norwegians being kind of forced out, but also seeking out employment with the Germans. And this is, it sounds uh, shocking because of the 
image we have of the Nazis later on, but we have to remember that that the image we have of the German occupation force is kind of a post-1945 image. I mean, the Germans who come in 1940, they have a different image. Nobody really knows that these are the people who is going to perpetrate the Holocaust. They don't, we, we don't really know them as torturists anymore. The Gestapo, all this stuff is to come later on. They're just German soldiers. It's, it's the German army. And uh, uh, like the, the not, we don't have, but the, the, the religious leader in Norway at the time, he was the bishop in Oslo. He makes a big point out of this, you know, that, okay, we have a war, uh, but if we lose, we have to kind of be good sports about it. And let's remember that uh, the Germans, they behaved kind of nicely to us. I mean, and, and they did so. The, the Germans were very clear to the, uh, the German generals, uh, were uh, uh, instructing their soldiers to behave uh, nicely against the Norwegian, respectfully and so on, not to steal anything. So working for the Germans in 1940 was something totally different than working for the Germans, say, if you consider that issue in 1946 or the fall of 45, you know, because in that case, it would have meant working for the, you know, these crazy Nazis who, uh, who uh, went through with the Holocaust, who uh, was laying Europe barren. But in 1940, it seemed just like any other kind of occupying force. So a lot of young men, they get work. And what the Germans do to lure people into working for them is, of course, they print money. So they, they pay very well. They, you work for the Germans, you get much better paid than working for a Norwegian company. So this is, if not necessarily popular, I mean, you can just keep your mouth shut and work for the Germans and you will make a lot of money. And you can then have much better prospects asking that girl that you're interested in to marry you might be able to buy an apartment. You may be able to have a life for yourself. And if you're pushing 30 and nothing of that has happened before, that's quite a, an incentive for a young man to, to take a job. You know, you work for a few months at some kind of German project. Uh, why, why worry about it? This can kind of save your life. And of course, you have to talk about, because as, as you know, of course, Christine will be the first kind of to do a coup d'etat through the radio. And as mentioned, he would be the first to broadcast that this has been a new government. We are the new Nazi government now. So we have to talk about this government too, of course. And how well does it do as, as prime minister of, of Norway? Uh, well, uh, to begin with, he does horribly, of course. And this is a big headache for the Germans. Um, same thing happens other places in Europe, uh, uh, most importantly in Holland. You also have a kind of quisling character there. Lusert is uh, uh, have his uh, fascist party, and he insists, you know, oh, I'll give Holland to me, and I'll uh, rule it, and we'll uh, do this according to the German needs, and we'll form some kind of Nazi union in Europe. The problem is that, of course, these local Nazi parties, Quisling's party in Norway and Mussert in Holland, they have no uh, basis for their authority. There is no popular support for them. Um, so they, they become just a burden to the German occupation because they are so unpopular and quickly become so hated. Um, so Quisling, he, uh, he, he makes this coup d'etat in the radio. 
and his uh, first government, it lasts like six days or something. And the Germans, they just, the, the German generals, they, they tell Hitler, you know, you, you have to get rid of him. We have to make an, uh, some other arrangement because he is hampering the German war effort. We can't occupy Norway with this guy. He's just too hated. The, 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 Ger- the Norwegians, we can talk to them. They can uh, deal with uh, the Wehrmacht, but they can't deal with Quisling. It's out of the question. So uh, very quickly, Hitler sends up uh, one of his old buddies from the Nazi party, uh, Josef Terboffen, um, who was a Gauleiter, the local Nazi leader in uh, in uh, Essen, is it? Or the, the industrial area east uh, west in Germany, and he's a, he's old school uh, Nazi, very hardcore, and he. Uh, he uh, tries to take the, you know, uh, establish relations with the Norwegians at first, and he wants. He sees that Quisling is just uh, uh, hopeless. He no, has no, no do, respect for you his do, Quisling. You do, you do theorize, and I wonder if this is reported that he does have Asperger's as we call it today. Is there truth to this that he does? <laughs> well, that's a whistling, not a... Uh, yeah, that, that, I, that's what I was referring to. Yeah, that's that Christling does have Asperger's. Is there ah, well, this? It's, it's not my words, uh, but uh, there's... Uh, Hans Fredrik Dahl, uh, who is kind of the leading uh, Quisling biographer in Norway, uh, when, when he reissued his biography, uh, yeah, he wrote his biography in the 90s, and he uh, it was reissued as a single volume, not uh, well, maybe ten years ago. I can't remember when. But then he had uh, he put in this information from a psychiatrist. And Quisling, of course, he was a very he was a very bizarre character, uh, um, very competent in his own way. He was number one at the War Academy, the Officers Academy, when he uh, he took his officer uh, training. Uh, but he was equal to Hitler, completely incapable of maintain, forming and maintaining human relations. He had no personal relations with anybody. Uh, he never smiled. He had this kind of uh, um, stony uh, expression on himself, no humor whatsoever. Um, so uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it might be fair to those who have this Asperger diagnosis, but... <clears throat> There are many, many uh, suggestions that he might have had it. And also this uh, very uh, um, unmovable ideological uh, view of things that he knows best. But at the same time, that's Nazi mentality. That's what the Nazis were. I mean, Quisling, he wrote his pro- uh, political program in 1933. It was one page. It wasn't very uh, sophi- uh, not complicated at all. But that was the standard Nazi thing. And it was not supposed to be changed. So he never changed it. It was one program, and, and this is what we go for. So, he, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it might make sense that he was, uh, he, uh, that he had some kind of uh, diagnosis. But the point is that politically, he was so unpopular. He was representing a pol- policy which was very alien to the Norwegian population at the time. Norway had become a uh, uh, a liberal democracy with uh, uh, with uh, strong hints now of a welfare, at least ambitions of a welfare state. 
And here come the Nazis and they want to take away all these democratic rights that like workers have been fighting very hard to get for the past uh, 50 years or so. Uh, so nobody in Norway thought that Quisling had any answers to how the country should be run. Uh, and Terboven, when he gets uh, underway with his uh, Reichskommissariat, what he uh, wants to do is to uh, form some kind of collaboration with the political community in Norway. He wants to maintain the parliament uh, and he wants the parliament to form some kind of coalition government that Terboven can work together with. This um, Riksråd, uh, it's called in Norwegian, uh, <clears throat> sort of not politically because it's not going to be War a council, perhaps. Pardon? War council, perhaps, directly. Yeah, some, something like that. But of course, this uh, there's not going to be a war anymore. Norway will uh, will uh, capitulate, and you're going to have a peaceful occupation, and and you have to. Uh, have a, an efficient administering of Norwegian society that aids the war effort, the German war effort on other fronts. So he doesn't want there to be a war situation. It's going to be a Germanic, Nordic, uh, you know, brotherhood of, of uh, people and where the Norwegians understand that collaborating with Terboffen and the, the German regime is to their own good, you know. So... The problem is that, of course, when they, they do this and, and the Norwegian parliament, they basically, they're about to go along with what Terboffen uh, demands. The problem is that for some strange reason, uh, Terboffen uh, makes a wrong turn at the very end of these negotiations. And he demands that the Nazi party in Norway, Quisling's party, will be guaranteed so and so many ministerial posts. And this is absolutely no goal for the Norwegian government or the, the Norwegian parliamentarians, the, you know, the, the politicians. Quisling is hated at that rate. So they just flatly say no. And being a Nazi, uh, being, uh, you know, very well... Uh, it does come as well. Yeah, <laughs> with a Nazi way of doing things, then Terboffen just makes a clean cut on it. He says, okay, mm -hmm. then we uh, ban all political parties. We... We, uh, we close down the parliament and we form, we let Quisling have his way. He can form this uh, 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 one-party Nazi government in Norway. And of course, the reason why Terboffen says that is not because he thinks Quisling is able to do anything, but it is because Quisling has Hitler's ear. Hitler likes Quisling and he's not interested in going into the details of um, you know, how things work in Norway. Uh, but Terboffen basically has to accept that Quisling is uh, at the Führer's uh, favor. So he is given the right to form this government. And Quisling does so. Uh, and they try to, uh, he has hopes that Norway will be Nazified, that the Norwegian population will understand that the Nazi rule is the way to the future. But it's uh, the, the remaining five years of, of uh, government is uh, upperly struggle all the way. You know, he, he never gets a hang of the Norwegian population. Um, of course, it moves fairly well. There's uh, a, a lot of people enter into the Nazi party, Quisling's party, because they need to do so. Uh, partially, also a lot of people we have to uh, 
accept this fact that they, they think the, the Nazis will be the way to the future. In 1940, 1941, it does seem like Hitler is about to win the war, you know. Uh, but then after the, the warlock changes with the Battle of Stalingrad and so on, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult to be a, a Nazi figure in Norway. So, and, and also there's a lot of internal strife among the Nazis, you know, in, in Quisling's own party. It's not like this is a party which has one unanimous voice about how things should be done. You have, very, you have various factions who end up coming to uh, attend with each other at several points in the, the occupation years. Now, Himmler as well is really fascinated by Norway and he's trying to recruit SS and Gestapo in Norway. And according to the Nazis, and I, th- I believe Hitler himself, he, he says that Norway, Norwegians, Hilfardai, is the ideal Aryan race. So what, why, why does it think that Norwegians are the Aryan race? And what, what is it with the fascination of recruiting Norwegian soldiers to the SS? And uh, which was quite a few joined up as we are going to talk about in Operation Barbarossa. Mm. Uh, what, what is it about the Norwegian fascination amongst the Nazis that they are this ideal Aryan race? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, 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 the Nazis, they, they use various terms for this. They call it the Aryan race. But of course, at the time, you, they think uh, the, the Indians and the Persians, they're also Aryans. You know? So it's not uh, the Aryan race uh, hails from Tibet uh, originally, so they have to be more specific. And then they have this idea they call it the Germanic races. But what is the German? You know, the, uh, the you, you find the Germanic uh, people all over Europe, as history shows. So in order to make it uh, even more uh, specific, they they also use this term the Nordic race, and and this is essential to Hitler's thinking because, <clears throat> of course, he was a he was a um, uh, uncompromising anti-Semite, but that was not the way he started out. Before 1918, before the 1920s, Hitler was much more of just a, a racist, generally speaking. He didn't like the, you know, this multicultural uh, state with, uh, in Austria, uh, the Habsburgian Empire that he uh, had been born into. He hated that stuff. He hated the Czechs, for example. He, he was really uh, ad- adverse to the, uh, you know, you had people in Austria speaking Czech language. Uh, stuff like that he really hated. Uh, so this, the, the idea of the Nordic races uh, appealed very much to him. Um, and they used this uh, interchangeably with the Germanic races. And what this was, was an idea that you had um, a racially pure segment of the European population centered in Germany, uh, but mainly Northern Europe. So you had the Germans, you had the Dutch, they were Germanic. You had part of the Belgians, you know, the Flemish speaking in Belgium. The French, not so much. You, know, you, you had the, the Germans, they could uh, make allowances for some North, Northern French uh, part of the northern French population, and, and they did recruit, you know, SS uh, soldiers from there. But it was mainly Dutch, uh, Danish, Swedes. They were into the Swedes too, of course, and then Norwegians. And the reason Gers why wife was, was Swedish, of course. Pardon? Göring's wife 
but Swedish. Yeah, and there's a lot of pro-German uh, attitudes. I mean, uh, in Norway, we have a, uh, um, easy access to England. It's just across the, uh, the ocean. But, but uh, Sweden traditionally has been more east and uh, southern um, leaning. So, so uh, there's a, there was a connection between Germany and, and Sweden even during the war. But the, of course, what they had was this idea that the Germanic, the Nordic race, had been maintained the most in the most pure uh, fashion in the Scandinavian countries, and no place more so than in Norway. Uh, this partly due to the Viking era, and, and uh, but they had this kind of mysterious mystique is very important to a Nazi frame of mind. They had this uh, kind of idea of a, a mysterious. Uh, cult or, or origin of, of uh, racially pure people uh, in Norway. So Himmler, he was very curious about Norway. He uh, Early on in the war, he made uh, a few journeys there. He came here often during the f- uh, spring of 1941, uh, partly because he wanted to establish Waffen uh, 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 SS recruitment. He wanted soldiers from Norway. To assist in the, you know, the planned uh, attack on the Soviet Union, uh, but the reason why he wanted soldiers for Norway was not because they were considered to be militarily necessary. What he needed them for was to create a kind of um, uh, a race racial elite in the future of uh, Greater Germania, which would be you know, occupied Europe. Uh, the SS would be, he envisioned the SS to be the backbone, the racial backbone of this Germanic empire, the, the Thousand Reich in the, in the future. And to do so, if he could induce Norwegians to uh, become part of this SS uh, organism, that would just strengthen the racial, racial quality in the SS. And you know, the technicalities of this is very difficult to, to uh, explain. It's, they had a lot of doctor, uh, scientists who wrote uh, um, voluminous uh, dissertations about this, but it boils down to some, this mysterious ideology of there being some kind of uh, a racial core, a Nordic, Germanic, Aryan racial core, which is the, was the most pure in Norway. So that's also why he wanted Norwegian women to to uh, marry German SS soldiers uh, to to breed basically. To and breed. there is actually quite a few women who does this that they not necessarily marry but become Nazi girlfriends. As well, we talk about after the war. Mm. Yeah, there there are quite a few. Uh, of course, you have to separate. You have this uh, the general. Uh, uh, kind of um, association between German soldiers and Norwegian women, which could just be, you know, there's uh, uh, a platoon of uh, 30 German soldiers come to some kind of small town or uh, uh, an isolated provincial area, and there just aren't that many other men, and the Germans come across as very handsome, dashing, nice uniforms and so on, and just normal interpersonal relations that develop. The, the SS effort is a totally different thing. That is a, a planned and orchestrated effort 
to secure genetic purification of of the future of of uh, the Nazi regime in in, uh, in Europe. That uh, German SS soldiers, not Wehrmacht soldiers, but German SS soldiers, uh, will be kind of uh, born, um, coupled with Norwegian pure blood women and they should just have as many babies as possible uh, in order to secure the, the future of Germania. Now, of course, this brings us to the next topic, which is, as, as we know, he does invade the Soviet Union, and they, there is some dedicated that little part of these new protests as well, the Norwegian soldiers that do join the SS. How, how did they behave and how well did they do in Operation Barbarossa when they were sent, being sent to the East Front? Mm. Well, in total, there's about 5,000, I think, uh, Norwegians who end up uh, enrolling into the Waffen SS. This is the military branch of the SS. It's a, I mean, SS uh, under Himmler started out as just the German police force. They, Himmler, soon after 1933, he, he took control over the German police and fused it with the SS uh, organization. So in order to be a German police officer, you had to become uh, uh, an SS member. And uh, the, the Norwegian police also were, was put under the control of, of SS men. I was sort of the, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the, the branch of SS uh, uh, with um, with uh, the task of controlling already occupied uh, territory or you know do, the domestic areas. Now, when they they uh, went into Soviet Union, they needed also a military branch, and that became the Waffen, the, the armed armed unit of of the SS. And this is where the uh, Norwegians um, were uh, um, kind of volunteered because they. They would only accept volunteers. The SS, the entire SS, the Waffen SS, uh, consisted of volunteer personnel. They wanted uh, people who were ideologically motivated. So that in itself says uh, that the, the, the Norwegians who volunteered for the SS, these 5,000 men, in, in aftermath, uh, what they tried to do, the survivors, they, they really tried to kind of portray themselves mainly as anti-Stalinists, you know, they were against the Bolsheviks, but they were, they would not never have been accepted into the SS unless they were ideologically convinced Nazis. This is very important. And they, they were, of course, they got uh, military training and they were sent to, to Germany to training camps, but a a substantial part of that training was ideological. They were ideologically indoctrinated with the SS worldview, the Weltanschauung of the the SS. So these were, uh, um, you know, uh, convinced Nazis uh, when they went into uh, the Soviet Union, and they, the Norwegians, they uh, went in first. They were. Uh, sent down uh, through Ukraine. Um, and uh, the details of it, this is a war situation. So we have to accept that uh, we will not have final answers about what they did there and so on. But we know that they uh, followed in the, you know, the, the wake of the, 
German war effort designed to just annihilate the the uh, Soviet population and fairly soon the Jewish population in in uh, the Ukraine and uh, the German the Norwegians uh, as long as they are part of the uh, SS that means and they're not being shipped back or executed or something like that that means they're doing their job you know the way the the Waffen SS leaders want them to do it so that means going all along uh, full blown um following uh, the the uh, procedure um with with all that which that entails of attacks on the civilian and the military uh, population in the former soviet union so there's no difference between being a norwegian waffen ss and being a german waffen ss or dutch waffen ss or anything like that they 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 uh, these norwegians are 5000 is uh, that's uh, that's a big uh, number, you know. This is, of course, the war um, all uh, seen on the one. Um, but uh, there's no reason to think that they were in any substantial way different or milder in their conduct than the German soldiers themselves. Now, of course, the, the, in, I'm up in the north of the town called Finnmark, and the, the Nazis did bomb quite a few ch- cities in Norway, but this one is kind of significant. And what? And we are going to talk about this now because the bombing of Finnmark and was there. So there was a reason behind this. And as you talk about in your book again, you do mention that the fear of Norway becoming post becoming a Soviet state. What? What was the re- How real was this threat? Threat that uh, Norway can become a communist state under Soviet Union post World War Two. <laughs> well, uh, be, becoming a, a Soviet state, uh, not very, uh, very. Uh, uh, the risk for that was not very big. But of course, as the war continues, and then Hitler makes this amazing blunder that he declares war on the United States. Um, I mean, within half a year, he does two major idiotic things. He, he goes to war against the Soviet uh-huh. Union, and then he goes uh, declares war on on uh, the United States after Pearl Harbor, um, which essentially guarantees he's going to lose the war. There's no way he's going to be able to win against those two. Uh, but then you have uh, an ally group consisting of England, which is now the baby brother, you know, they're not a very strong partner in this uh, um, uh, troika of, of uh, countries. And then you have uh, uh, the United States and you have the Soviet Union. And you have Roosevelt and Stalin. Uh, and they discuss when you, you get into 42, 43, 44, they discuss how post-World War II Europe will look like. Uh, and they put up uh, various scenarios because Stalin is very clear, he wants his sphere of influence, and the uh, the, the Western two countries, the, the United States, the Americans, they kind of had by by uh, the World War uh, ensures that they breaking out of their isolationist stance. Because um, in, in before the uh, before Hitler went on his rampage, you know, in the United States, is the the political community is most inclined to just uh, stay out of everything that the Europeans battle it out. But now Americans too, they, they think they uh, need to uh, 
control the post-World War. And in fact, in one of those plans they put up, I can't remember exactly when it was, I think sometime in 1943, Norway is placed within the Stalinist, uh, Stalin's sphere of influence. <laughs> because Stalin, is, uh, this is, uh, has always been a, uh, a weak point of uh, uh, Russian geo uh, mil- military strategic uh, situation or however you want to put it that they don't have any ports they only have Vladivostok in the east they have uh, the Black Sea fleet and then they have Murmansk you know uh, on the uh, uh, Kola Peninsula which allows them access to ice-free waters so, so uh, uh, the Russians they really would have liked to have access to uh, especially the coastal areas in northern Norway. Um, But this never materializes into something very serious. Uh, Norway stays firmly within the Western sphere of influence during the war. Uh, Not necessarily that we can, uh, people would know that. And when you uh, follow the war from Norway during those uh, occupational years, you know, 1940 to 45, of course, the the press is uh, Nazi control. Under Nazi control, there's a censorship. But what they write about is the Eastern Front. Uh, The interest is towards what goes on in between Germany and the Soviet Union. Uh, After the war, emphasis is much more on the Western Front and the landing in Normandy and, you know, the SOE, the sabotage groups coming from England and so on. But during the war, the main concern is what is going on in the Soviet Union and in, on the, in the Finnish theater, not the least. Um, uh, how, how the war in Finland is playing out. And when we get towards the end of the war, 1944-45, uh, you mentioned uh, Finnmark. And, and of course, Finnmark is the first part of Norway to be liberated by Soviet troops. But what is happening there is that the Germans are first retreating out of Finland. They're moving north and they're burning Finland uh, north of in, in the northern part in Lapland. They're beginning the scorched earth tactic in Finland, then moving into Norway. And they just continue doing the same thing there, burning everything and, and uh, forcibly uh, um, evacuating the local population down towards uh, uh, further south in Norway to just leave a barren country that the Soviet uh, soldiers cannot kind of survive on to, to keep the Soviet Union out of, of Finnmark. I'm trying to ask the same question again because, yeah, as you say, how likely would it be been that the Soviet Union would have kept northern Norway after the liberation? No, no, obviously, uh, in retrospect, in hindsight, what we know now. Uh, not very likely. Stalin obviously didn't consider it crucial. Or he, he, what his uh, considerations were, I don't know. He might have thought it would have created too much conflict with the Allies, with the, with the Western Allies. But he was there. He had soldiers in, uh, in Finnmark, Ukrainian soldiers, if I'm not mistaken, quite a few of them. Um, they they, they uh, pushed out the Germans. They were there, but they stopped uh, quite uh, far east in, in uh, Finnmark, and they never showed any ambition to, to proceed. So Stalin, uh, when you uh, get towards the end of the war, and now you're talking late 1944, 45, 
thought that uh, England can take Norway. So he allowed English troops to be the first to enter into, uh, to sort of handle the, uh, the um, uh, you know, the, the, the post-war phase in Norway. Uh, so so uh, in hindsight, you can say Norway was not really under risk. Of course, if Stalin had thought differently, he would not have uh, thought twice about taking northern Norway because um, look at what he did in Finland, this massive, uh, uh, massive operation he did there in 1939 to, to have Finland. But uh, they, um, Norway was obviously not, he was satisfied with having his uh, part of East Europe and, you know, Poland and Czechoslovakia and the Baltic states would be very important to him, but, but not northern Norway. So, of course, you haven't touched upon this, but I, and this brings us to the next part, which is uh, the Jewish, and I put in quotation, the Jewish problem. So how, how was this dealt with? There were actually quite a few Jews in Norway at the time of the Nazi occupation. I don't know, not many. It's 2000, something like that, 2,500. I can't remember exactly. And uh, the, the, the Jewish population in Norway didn't have a long history. There might be like grandchildren. You could have three generations living here. The first of them came, they, they came from uh, East Europe, you know, uh, the former Soviet or the, the former Tsarist Russia. Uh, they had fled the pogroms there, some from the Baltic states. Um, but that was uh, not different from Germany in itself. The, the Jews in Germany were not a big minority. They were a very small part of the population. And still they were considered dangerous enough that they had to be um, exterminated. Uh, so... Uh, uh, the, the, the Germans, they move against the Jews very soon after the, uh, they, they come to Norway. Uh, still, while the fighting is going on, in, in May 1940, I believe, they confiscate radio apparatuses among, uh, owned by Jews. Um, so they, they have a clear anti-Semitic um, uh, attitude. But of course, the, the Holocaust uh, in Norway, as well as in the rest of Europe, is a fairly improvised thing, you know. It, it happens very quickly in 1942. It's a consequence of things not going uh, Hitler's way in the Soviet Union. Barbarossa is not moving, uh, is not succeeding the way he's hoping for. And by this time, he's, uh, he's a convinced anti-Semite. And Nazi ideology um, explains all ills in the world be the capitalist world or the Bolshevik world. This is a kind of insoluble paradox of Nazi mentality that they could uh, blame Bolshevism and free market capitalism both on the Jewish population. But that's how they did it. Uh, uh, So so, uh, when things are not moving uh, according to uh, Hitler's plan in, in the Soviet Union, he thinks that by exterminating, removing the European Jewish population, uh, that is one of the crucial things he needs to do in order to get his uh, get a grasp around the conflict, to move the war into the direction where he wants it to move. Uh, so, I mean, the, the final solution is decided upon sometime in the, 
late winter of 1942, February, when you have the Bonse conference, can't remember exactly when. The deportations in Europe begin in the summer of 1942. And due to certain events of, of um, uh, military events in Norway, it explodes in Norway in the fall, October, November 1942. That's when the Holocaust comes to Norway. Uh, it's been, of course, part of the plan all along, but it's uh, some local, um, uh, the local situation uh, dictates why it's happening. Uh, and as uh, with many, many things in the, the Nazi way of doing it, it's a partly planned, but also partly just improvised operation. They do it on the spur of the moment. Now we have the window of opportunity. We need to use it now. So, now, uh, the way I understood it, they do seem to be able to get all the Jews out and send to concentration camps, various places around Europe. So you do mention this as well. How, how many does come back alive and back to Norway after the war? The exact number of how many comes back, uh, I, I don't know. They, they deport 773 people. Uh, and this is not a big shipment. You have to remember that they're... They have a, a lot of experiencing deportations at this time. 773 people would would just be a minor city, you know, in, in the, for example, Austria. Mm-hmm. That, what they deport from Vienna and Berlin and so on is, is uh, populations uh, of uh, greater size than that. So this is not a big operation for the Germans uh, at all. But they deport 773 uh, people and uh, they go straight to Auschwitz and they're being uh, gassed immediately upon our arrival. Um, how many return? I, I don't know, but it's, it's just a handful. They, they take out a few men for uh, camp service, uh, but the vast majority, they're killed instantly. And of course, before we go on to the post-war years and after World War II, we have to talk about the first. And this is an episode in itself. And if you're watching, I don't know if you are, but if you watch Norwegian cinema, this is quite a popular topic. No doubt, the Norwegian resistance. It's quite, there's quite a few handful of movies made about mm-hmm. this, of course. And we have so how significant was the Norwegian resistance to Nazi occupation? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course, I'm thinking of Duna, the ship Duna as well, of course. Yeah, well, the Duna is the ship that uh, transports the Jews to um, to um, uh, Poland. From there, they go by uh, by train to to Auschwitz. Uh, but the, the the Norwegian resistance is not surprising that it is uh, figures prominently in kind of the national self image of of Norway. All nations need heroes. Um, and uh, you have the military, uh, the organized military resistance in 1940, uh, which goes on for two months, which is kind of uh, at first in shambles, but then it's built up and becomes fairly organized. You have uh, some strong leaders. You have this general Uto Ruge who is uh, conducting it and is very determined to fight the, uh, the Germans. Uh, but after they... they uh, the, the Allies leave uh, Narvik. There's not much uh, alternative, but uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, capitulating. 
So at that time, the Norwegian officers, they have to give their word of honor that they will not fight against Germany later on. So they, they, uh, this is uh, something that sounds a little bit strange to us, but it's, uh, it was common to do this. It's kind of this, this gentlemanly officer's uh, approach to war that you need to have, um, you need to have uh, rules to abide by. You can't just have war in a state of anarchy. So when we, we are defeated, we accept it and we say we're not going to fight against the, the Germans later on. This becomes a, creates a problem because when the warlock changes and there is uh, a sense that Germany might lose the war and that happens not uh, many Norwegians. They, they walk around since 1940, you know, thinking it's just a question of time when the Allies come and uh, Germany will lose. So you have all these officers who then have committed themselves not to fighting and they have put themselves effectively out of the resistance. Um, what happens later on is that, of course, you have a, uh, a civilian resistance uh, in, the, uh, in the wake of Quisling being named uh, the prime minister, essentially prime minister of Norway in September 1940. This is a turning point because uh, the civilian society in Norway is not prepared to accept him. So you have a, the buildup of a civilian resistance movement. Uh, slowly but surely, there's a military resistance movement as well. Uh, you, have, uh, you have officers who defy this code of honor, but you also have um, the government, which has by now escaped Norway and established itself in, in uh, London. They, have, they, they build up a ministry of defense and they, they uh, have a, a military organization in London. And in early 1942, those, uh, they come in contact with um, a military, kind of the precursor of the uh, a military resistance movement in, in Norway. And this this military resistance kind of the kind of the uh, um, mainstream resistance movement in Norway they don't do much until you get towards the very last phase of the war you're talking then the last 12 10 12 months you know um, May 1944 they launched some uh, bomb attacks against uh, recruitment office uh, offices uh, that the Germans have and for the last uh, the next 12 months, they, they uh, have a fairly uh, high level of activity. They're going after train transportations, uh, you know, infrastructure and so on. But it's at the very end of the war. You have this, um, uh, the, the local military kind of um, um, uh, organization in, in Norway. In addition, you have these... Uh, uh, Norwegian soldiers, volunteers who have gone to England to join the, the, the English uh, the military, but they're put under control by, by the Norwegians. So there's a lot of wrangling back and forth, you know, who's going to decide their uh, operations in Norway. But they're saboteurs, you know, like elite soldiers, paratroopers and so on. Uh, and when you, we talked about the Waffen SS, amounting to 5,000 men earlier on. What you have in England is, uh, during the war, 500. So, um, you know, in, uh, the, the ones who are going to um, 
entering into the Waffen SS, about 10 times as many. Uh, and these, uh, these um, SOE, Special Operations Executive Soldiers, um, sort of, uh, they, they become in the popular um, mind uh, the most active. They, they do some very, uh, um, they, they perform some sabotage uh, operations which get, a lot, which get a lot of attention. They, they uh, bomb, uh, you know, German installations and Importantly, they, they attack the, um, the uh, economic resources of the Germans in Norway, you know, mines, not least, because Norway has a lot of minerals. So you have those, you have, you have two groups so far, you have the military resistance in Norway, then you have these English, England, Scotland-based SOEs, and then in addition you have uh, communist uh, resistance groups. Uh, in Norway, you have two actually. You have one in Finnmark. You know the these partisans who are being shipped in from the Soviet military, and then you have a, a resistance group more based in southern Norway, run by um, a communist who stands under the orders of the Soviet uh, secret police, as a matter of fact, and Poveda. And this group, the Oswald group, is. Uh, active from they, they make the first efforts already in 1941, but from 1942 to 1944 they're very active uh, and been talked much less about in, in uh, the post-war years in Norway, mainly because they were communists. But they were uh, this this guy, the leader. He was uh, much more adamant in his uh, resistance and that. Uh, the, the Germans could only be fought against by military means. So you had uh, you had a kind of multifaceted resistance movement, military resistance in in Norway at the time. So of course, as you know, we don't go into to after war. As we know, Hitler loses. And how how does the the occupation process work? And how the Nazi trials in Norway? Yeah, well, what you have is uh, uh, some of those uh, German leaders, they either shoot themselves like the, the uh, Reichskommissar Terboffen, he shoots himself and a few others, uh, prominent SS leaders. The occupation, is, uh, we, we mentioned uh, previously that what occupies, what attacks Norway is not the kind of Nazi party as such, is the Wehrmacht, is the German military. But because of the way things develop for Hitler, with the, uh, that he gets bogged down in the Soviet Union, the occupation of Norway is placed under the, the, the Nazi party, but <clears throat> the SS uh, gets a very strong role in the occupation of Norway. And these, these are just, uh, you know, red glowing Nazis. So, so quite a few of them, they, they kill themselves. In addition, of course, you have the <coughs> Norwegian part of the occupation. It's important to remember we have two occupational regimes in Norway. You have the Germans, but you also have Quisling and his his organization. And uh, this uh, his his Nazi party becomes very big. If, if at, at uh, the top of it, he has forty thousand members. So after the war, when it's become time to make a reckoning with the uh, the occupation, 
there's just an immense number of people who are indicted in Norway. 90,000 people are put on trial, or at least um, uh, get cases put against them for treason. You know. um, and that's, well, among uh, those arrested, if I remember correctly, is the Norwegian writer, Knut Hansen, for being kind of a Nazi. It's not really Nazi, but, you know, not pro-Nazi. Oh, yeah, he, he, he was... Uh, Politically, Hamsin was Nazi. I mean, uh, you, of course, if you want to be very apologetic about it, you can say, oh, he was an old man. And what he really cared about was, uh, you know, uh, the, the cultural bond between Norway and Germany. But this is a guy, he's not, he's not a dement or anything like that. He's very old at the time, way up in his 80s. Um, but he knows what's going on. He knows Norway is being... Uh, occupied he has followed hitler from the 1930s on so he, he knows what the nazi ideology is all about um, and the nazis the germans love i mean uh, alfred rosenberg he uh, kind of the chief ideologue of the nazi party in germany he writes um uh uh, uh, uh a book which is called The Myth of the 20th Century, where he attempts to explain kind of the cultural and the uh, sort of philosophical racial state of Europe, how it has developed uh, world historically. It's a, it's a uh, work which is kind of bizarre to read, but it's immensely wide in scope. And in that book, he says that, oh, the, you know, the Nazis, Hitler thought of himself as an artist. They, they had this kind of uh, romanticist idea of, of uh, um, themselves. They were kind of in touch with the uh, mysterious forces in nature. Uh, they had to be geniuses. They couldn't really be explained why they did the politics they did. They just knew that it's going to work. And Homsen, he, he uh, is uh, the writer which more than anything is able to kind of express this. So Rosenberg says that there's only one writer, you know, who's really expressing the force of the power of the will today in Europe, and that is Knut Hamsen. So Hamsen, uh, all the German soldiers who came to Norway, at least vast majority of them had read Hamsen or had, uh, had uh, his book along with him. So Hamsen, he is also... Uh, uh, they, the, the post-occupational regime in Norway, they go after Hamsen along with everybody else. But it's very difficult to, to, uh, to uh, kind of um, uh, admit that this great writer who Norwegians have been adoring, idolizing for so long, was a Nazi. So they, they make a, they kind of take a cheap way out of it. And they say, no, he is really dement. That's the reason why he loved the Nazis. They say that he has uh, weakened intellectual abilities. And of course, Thompson's response to that is furious, right? And he ends up writing his uh, last book, 100 pages long, which is one of the best books he wrote. He wrote his best books at the very beginning and the very end of his, uh, his uh, career, um, effectively proving that he was anything but dement or mentally uh, you know, uh, retarded. Um, but for the rest of the these uh, no, uh, Nazi party members, which uh, Hamsen was never a member of the party, so they couldn't take him on that. 
but only other members, um, and as I said, 90,000 in a population of 3 million is a huge number, um, uh, were uh, prosecuted with a vengeance. But typically, this is uh, the kind of the atmosphere, the mood subsided. So the most death penalties were uh, um, decided upon in the fall of 45, 46. But as the war became uh, more and more distant, um, the, the um, verdicts became increasingly milder. Um, so... Uh, Norway was a, a country which really had among the highest percentage of, of people put on trial for Nazi collaboration you know, and, and, and treason. Um, of course, so something we have to we were talking about this earlier and importation Nazi girls that were how, how were they treated after the war because it was wasn't very nice. No, they were not treated nicely. It's typical of any occupation, you know. Um, you have a, an intriguing parallel in Iceland after the war because uh, the, the Americans, they, uh, of course, wanted Iceland as a military base. So they stationed a lot of troops uh, in and around Keflavik, the, the airport. And you have sort of a similar animosity towards Icelandic girls dating American soldiers in Iceland, actually. Of course, not, uh, not nearly as... Uh, uh, violent as it became in, in Norway and other occupied countries, but this kind of the, the male society's feeling of entitlement that we are entitled to control the sexuality and the social life of our women is prevalent in just about any society and Norway wasn't very different and I think uh, I mean it's uh, estimated around 10 it's difficult to say exactly how many uh, uh, women dated German soldiers, but it might have been as many as more than 100,000. You have a, more than 10,000 children being born after the war, I think. Uh, so th it's, it's, this was a widespread phenomenon. And they were went uh, gone after with uh, the horrible means. You had all these... Uh, techniques of humiliation, you know, some were stripped naked, but that wasn't very common in Norway. What the um, kind of, uh, and these were young men going after that. What they would do is, of course, shave their hair. So they would be visibly for anyone to see, to see that. This was uh, a, a young girl who had uh, been dating some German. Um, and Again, the, the mood was the most virulent in the immediate aftermath of the war, you know, uh, May, June, uh, summer months of 1945, before it uh, gradually subsided. But uh, those who had uh, become pregnant and had uh, given uh, birth to children, uh, those children were branded, uh, you know, German children. And uh, it was ju it's just a very... Uh, sad aspect of, of um, recent Norwegian history, the utter lack of, you know, inclination, uh, will uh, in the society. Barbarity. Pardon? Bar barbarity. Yeah, well, you can say barbarity, but it's, uh, um, yeah, whichever term you want to use for it, 
at the same time sitting in 2022 and moralizing about reactions. You have yeah. to remember that the occupation was a tough one on Norwegians. Uh, one thing is that, of course, you had rationing, you had hunger and all these kind of things, but there were a lot of Norwegians who ended up uh, being uh, arrested and experiencing German um, uh, German uh, um, violence. <laughs> Just a second. No worries. Uh, uh, the German, uh, uh, they put in German prisons and so on. So you had uh, um, a, a lot of uh, hard feelings. And uh, so it's not surprising at all that you'd have some kind of, um, you know, reaction towards those who were considered to be uh, collaborating with the Germans. It would have happened any in any place. Thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure to have you on before you go. Do you have anything you want to promote and link you wish with to be in the description below? My pleasure. Thank you. My name is Alan. This has been about H12. We are available every Thursday. Please like, share and subscribe to our channel. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. Please, if you have an iPhone, please consider writing us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcast that would help us out a lot. Like, share, and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.